Monsters Walk With Us contains explicit language, adult themes, violence, and may not be suitable for listeners under 18. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome, friends. Welcome back. If you're a returning friend, welcome. If you're new, really excited to be back and to have you back on, Abby. It's been a hot minute. Hello, hello. It's good to be back. The research that I did on this episode, I found the show Killer Cases, and it's on A&E. I was able to watch this on YouTube, and this is season one, episode seven. The writer and narrator, Brian Ross, did an amazing job on this script. And so I definitely plan to use more of this show because they did a lot with the family members, which I always appreciate. That's really nice, yeah. I feel like it gives more insight into the person and kind of puts the spotlight more on them. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I brought this up last time, but there's this YouTuber, Kendall Ray, and she does a lot of really in-depth interviews with the families that she's talking about she sort of made like these hour-long movies of just interviews with them and talking about the case and it's really interesting that she's only on youtube but i love that i think i listened to one of her podcasts yeah is it mile high something? yeah i think so yeah yeah, yeah I've listened i haven't to listened that to one. her podcast yet but yeah she has a lot of different things so the script that they wrote this episode is called murder at the mall There was another case that came up in relation to Michelle Martinko, the first woman that we're going to talk about. And I used Wikipedia for this research and also a YouTube channel called That Chapter that I've been watching. It's shorter form content. That episode is called The Abduction of Jody Poissentrude. And that's the second case that we're going to talk about today. I also used an article from the Des Moines Register that'll be linked in the episode description and a website created by Jody's friends and family called www.findjody.com. The content warnings for this episode are murder, mention of necrophilia, and unsolved disappearances. Michelle Martinko was 18 years old in December 1979, living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Her parents, Albert and Janet Martinko, encourage her academic and extracurricular success. She does really well in school, and the teachers and administrators all had positive relationships with her. She's in the choir, and her sophomore year, she joins the Twirling Scott. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> the Twirling Squad. which is baton twirling (laughs) oh yeah Yeah. i I flubbed that immediately yeah i was like what is that (laughs) i'll just go ahead and leave that in just for everyone (laughs) to enjoy (laughs) michelle is also involved in the theater department she's very open and friendly always ready to make small talk and just get to know people all the pictures of her hanging out with kids her age sort of show how confident she was there's a few where she's posing And she just looks like she would have been graceful. She's very fashionable. And she has light blonde hair that she wears feathered out like Farrah Fawcett style. She just sounds like like a supermodel to me. Yeah, she's definitely like very well put together. And I would agree. She's conventionally very pretty. She's described as pretty happy and bubbly. And she's planning to attend Iowa State University because she's interested in pursuing interior design. She is a senior when she is murdered. December 19th, 1979, Michelle and the rest of the choir students are having their winter banquet at the Cedar Rapids Sheridan Inn. 
She's dressed to the nines, wearing a black dress, a scarf, black tights, and heels. She has a brown purse and a white and brown rabbit fur jacket that ends just below the waist. The fashion. I know, gosh. Serving like, rabbit fur realness. I know. I'm like, is she a millionaire or something? Like, where's she getting these clothes? <laughs> I have to admit, I love fur. I would never buy a new fur. I think that's terrible, but like thrifted or inherited. As the banquet ends, she asks a twirling squad member who is there if they'd want to join her going to the mall. The Westdale Mall had just opened, and Michelle had never been there before. She had about $180 on her, which is almost $700 in today's money. Damn. I know. (laughs) She shops for a while and sees some school friends that she chatted with, as well as some other mall workers that she knew. She's there looking to buy a new winter coat. The last time anyone in the mall sees Michelle is around 8 or 9 p.m. when she'd been outside of a jewelry store. When Michelle isn't home by midnight, her parents are starting to get pretty worried. At 2 a.m., her father calls the cops and reports that Michelle is missing, and then he starts looking for her. The cops also start searching the area, and around 4 a.m., they find the Martinko family car, a green and tan 1972 Buick Electra, in the parking lot of the ball, parked outside JCPenney. Inside, they found Michelle's body slumped into the passenger seat. There was blood everywhere, and the autopsy would determine that Michelle was stabbed 29 times in the chest, face, and neck. Damn. Oh, I know. Like, I'm like, that's so I'm bad. trying to make sense. The only thing I could think of, like, was she, she went into the mall and then she came out and sat in her car and got killed? Like, was someone in her passenger seat? There were defensive wounds on her hands, meaning she fought and struggled with the killer. The police don't find any blood outside of the car, so they can determine that she'd been killed in the driver's seat. Yeah. So yeah, she was probably in her car and someone yanked the door open and attacked her. Yeah. From what they can tell. The last person to speak with Michelle is a guy named Kurt Thomas, another theater kid that she'd been in a play with. He was working at the mall that night, and he said she was acting normal, like very friendly and animated and just her usual self. And they're talking, and he walks her to the mall exit. She smiles at him, says goodbye, and walks off into the parking lot. That is the last time she's seen. By anyone. Besides the person who killed her. Yeah, so she's, like, I'm exaggerating, but, like, 20 feet from her car, and between, like, the door of the mall and the door of her car. Yep. Between, like, buckling herself in. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Jesus. The medical examiner was able to narrow down her time of death between 8 and 10 p.m. The medical examiner cannot identify the murder weapon conclusively, just that it was a sharp and pointed object. They also can't figure out the size of the weapon. The killer wore gloves, so they don't have any fingerprints to work with. A spokesperson for the police said they couldn't determine the gender of the killer, as Michelle was fully dressed and had not been sexually assaulted. Even though, quote, everyone's instinct is to say it was a guy. That makes me wonder, is the only reason people say, oh, it was a male killer because they were sexually assaulted? Like, how do people determine the the gender of the murderer i would say probably the majority of cops would uh go right to like oh a a man did this yeah statistically uh, i guess understandable but yeah, yeah like i agree with you that that's not a qualifying criteria for the gender of 
the killer. Like, I've heard some people say, oh, you can determine the height of the person depending on, like, how they stabbed you. But, like, if she's sitting down, that's probably, like, unless you're sitting in the passenger seat, like, you're and probably this is not also... going to determine that like the late 70s early 80s so (laughs) i doubt they're even doing that type of crime scene investigation michelle's purse still had all her cash in it so they know robbery wasn't a motive because of the number of stab wounds and where they were on her body cops believe this had to be a personal attack her family immediately suspects her ex-boyfriend, Andy Seidel. They'd had a nasty breakup, and Andy refused to accept it and didn't want to move on. Ugh. Recently? I think so. The cops are suspicious of Kurt Thomas, the guy who walked her to the mall exit that night. They interview him before he even found out Michelle had been murdered. And he says they were good cop, bad copping him pretty oh, hard. Oh, no. Yeah. Ugh. Michelle was buried at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Elizabeth Lehman was a classmate of Michelle's who had taken self-defense classes with her. And she tells the Des Moines Register, quote, no amount of self-defense could have saved her from that. I have to agree. Like, sitting in your car, you're completely off guard. Yeah. No, there's sometimes when, like, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll immediately feel this panic. Like, if someone were to be in your room right now, you would ha- you would be defenseless. You would be unable to do anything about it or like if you're in your car and there's someone behind in like in the back seat you couldn't do anything about it unless you were like so on your game so like in tune with your surroundings that you knew there was someone in your back seat or something that like you could just react in a split second like how many people can do that to be honest with you there were a few times at our last apartment because we were in like a pretty sketchy area and complex that I forgot to lock the door when I took Susie out and I was like out of vision of the front door for a little bit. And you bet your ass I went in there and like pulled out a knife. Oh my gosh. And cleared every room, looked in the closet, looked in both bathrooms, like checked any potential space, the laundry room, everywhere. Because yeah, I just, yeah, I was so fucking paranoid that not even that someone, anyone stole anything, but just that someone was in there waiting for me to let my guard down. Oh my God. I also have joked a lot on the podcast about attic man. There is no possibility of an attic man in our current place, which I'm very happy to say. It's just like, could not be a reality. Oh my God. And it's just a lot safer here, safer and nicer. So yeah. Anyway. Oh no, I know that feeling. And that's on PTSD hypervigilance. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) In the initial stages of the investigation, the community comes forward with a ton of tips and leads to chase down. More than 200 people contacted the cops. Police used polygraph exams to rule out a few people of interest, and they rule out a fellow mall employee of Kurt's who told the cops that he enjoyed following women and being pervy with mannequins. Um... I'm not here to kink shame you on the mannequins, bro, but what the fuck is up with I like to follow women? That is a huge red flag. Openly admitting to police that you stalk people? The community is in an uproar, and the rumor mill is running wild. One theory floating around was that the cops were covering up another stabbing murder. So there was another recent stabbing, like, in this same town? Must have been, yeah. There are also people saying Michelle had been getting phone calls leading up to her murder, that she was being harassed by someone anonymously. The cops speak out publicly to dispel these rumors, but I am quite sure people just kept talking. 
Obviously. Michelle's sister, Janelle Stonebreaker, says that the rumors being circulated were the most harmful things she could ever imagine. People were saying Michelle was doing sex work or got involved with drugs or trying to do this weird victim blamey shit, even though there's no evidence of that. And also sex work is not something to be ashamed of. Yeah. There are no cameras in the mall parking lot, so they have no real way to get objective evidence about the identity of the killer. They have no eyewitnesses, and because it's the late 70s, like we said before, DNA isn't even a thought in anyone's mind. Yeah. They can't exclude anyone they suspect, and the case goes cold. Michelle's family is heartbroken, obviously. Yeah. And her mother, Janet, starts getting prank calls after the murder. From the murder or from just random pieces of shit trying to, like, be pieces of shit? I'm gonna say random pieces of shit trying to be pieces of shit. They'd pretend to be Michelle. <gasps> I can't, like that wasn't even what I was thinking. They pretended to be Michelle. They would pretend to be Michelle or they would say very sickening. nasty, vulgar things about her. Yeah, sickening is exactly right. It's funny you say that because that's something Danielle, my friend that passed away, would say all the fucking time. Just oh, man. sickened, disgusted, I mean, sickened. Oh, yeah. Imagine. How awful are you? What the fuck? Like, what is your major malfunction? Like, how dissociated from life do you have to be to, like, call a grieving mother pretending to be her child? How fucked up do you have to be to think that's in any way something you should do with your time? Amusing. Something funny and amusing and just a laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, who the fuck are you? What? Oh, Who that's the disgusting. Fuck are you? Yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. Janelle says Janet lost part of herself when Michelle died. And Janet is interviewed on the news in 1987 saying she doesn't believe the case will ever be solved. She doesn't believe they're going to find out who murdered her daughter. Years later, at a candlelight vigil for Michelle, one woman is interviewed and she says there's a lot of people whose voice she can't remember, but she'll never forget Michelle's laugh. That's really nice. I feel that way about my friend too. Her laugh was very infectious and contagious and unique. Yeah. I'm sure anybody listening that ever knew her came into contact with her. I a hundred percent know they know what I'm talking about right now. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing to remember. Someone's laugh. Almost 40 years go by without any real leads in the case. Janet and Albert, Michelle's parents pass away with no answers, which is heartbreaking. Janelle says Michelle was her parents' miracle baby because her mom was 42 when she got pregnant with Michelle. Oh my god. My mom was 42 when she got pregnant with my brother John. Yeah. Fun fact. I want to say my mom was either 39 or 40 when she got pregnant with me, so. Michelle's mother passed away convinced it was Andy Seidel. Discovering this case, but as a mother, knowing everything you know about your daughter, just wondering every day. I just, I can't even, can't even imagine. Like, none of us could. yeah. Nothing happened until 2006. This is the year I graduated (laughs) high school. Picture this. CSI Miami is one of the hottest TV shows of all time. Everybody is starting to get some cultural awareness around Mm -hmm. forensic Mm -hmm. techniques, forensic evidence. Obviously in a Hollywood version, not 100% accurate, but people are starting to understand the beginning stages of DNA, what they could do. Janelle and the rest of Michelle's family are anxious and frustrated. They find out there's evidence at the police department that had never been DNA tested before. What What were they doing with it? (laughs) Just like, 
let letting it sit there being like, oh, this isn't important. Oh, Jesus Christ. When they test these, they find DNA from the person who killed Michelle. They track down the suspects and get DNA samples. Michelle's ex-boyfriend, Andy Seidel, DNA did not match. Oh my God. Kurt Thomas refuses to give a DNA sample because he is married to a judge in Oklahoma oh where the wind <laughs> comes sweeping down the plains. <laughs> this woman tells him absolutely fucking not under no circumstances should you give your DNA to the police. Kurt Thomas reads a pre-prepared statement to the cops and they like flip out. They are not amused with this. I mean, what kind of pre-prepared statement? Like, I'm guessing one that his judge wife helped him write that was like non-incriminating but clear about his rights or something, right? Yeah. I don't know. According to Kurt, he says the cop put the phone down on his desk and announces loudly, we found our killer. Okay, that's very matter of fact. Then he picks the phone back up and says, we're coming after you. We're getting a warrant and we're going to get that DNA, even if you don't want to give it. Eventually, Kurt and his lawyer do agree to give DNA. It's not a match. Surprise, surprise. They get samples from what this program says is hundreds of men, but they still can't find anyone that matches. Jesus. Janelle says they even tested her husband's DNA. Wow. They are completely out of leads. In 2015, a new detective took on the case. His father had worked on the original case. Okay. He reviews well over 7,000 pages worth of reports, notes from the investigation, suspect lists, and more. His wife had just gotten an Ancestry DNA kit as a gift, and she suggests he check out the site to see if they could possibly use this as a way to narrow down their suspect pool. And this has now been used quite a few times, including with the Golden State Killer. Most famously, yeah. This detective tracks down a company that specializes in creating images of what people might look like from their DNA profile. That's another thing that fascinates me. I was about to say, fascinating. Yeah, those like older pictures of people I'm like, how do you know that's what they're going to look like? This company can do eye color, hair color, skin color, and they create three pictures that they show at a press conference. It's the same person with different hairstyles and ages. From this, they get 200 tips. Damn. All about different people. Holy shit. In 2018, the Golden State Killer case is solved. Joseph D'Angelo is arrested after ancestral DNA is used to connect him to the many rapes and murders oh, that he'd yeah. committed. This is a firestorm. Before this, only people invested in their genealogy would do something like this. Maybe yeah. one example, looking for biological family members. It's pretty small scale, yeah. including the scientists who have pioneered this field. They're trying to find a match. Someone with a significant amount of DNA in common with the DNA they have of the suspect. Yeah. They do find someone, a woman living in Washington State. They're closing in on three brothers who all live in Iowa. Manchester, Iowa is farm country. Classic small town vibes with a population somewhere right around 5,000 people, including the three brothers, Jerry Burns, Kenneth Burns, and Donald Burns. Manchester is about 45 minutes away from Cedar Rapids. The detectives call Janelle and her husband, John, and tell them they're looking at three suspects definitively. They are thrilled 
and just crying and kind of overwhelmed now with hope that this is finally going to go somewhere. Yeah. None of these three men knew Michelle or her family. They had no ties to the mall. None of them have had issues with law enforcement. And all three men are actually business owners. Jerry and Kenneth own a business in Manchester and Donald is living in Davenport. And they are definitively the DNA that was found. It's one of these three dudes. The cops head to Manchester and keep it quiet. They play their cards very close to the chest. They have to be sneaky sneaky to get the DNA samples they need. They don't want to tip off the brothers that they're being investigated. Their number one suspect is Kenneth. They tail him for most of the day until he gets lunch at the clubhouse on his golf course. Again, this reads as very rich to me. I realize this is something your grandparents do. I mean, to me, I'm like, ooh, ooh, fancy. Honestly, I find it fancy too. They're watching him closely when they see him leave behind a straw in his glass. They snatch it up and send it out for testing. Iowa State crime lab techs have the results back within days, but they can't match the sample taken from Michelle's dress to Kenneth. Next up is Donald. They head to Davenport, described as the big city. They sift around in Donald's trash until they find a used toothbrush. This is also not a match. So they go back to Manchester to investigate Jerry. They follow Jerry to the Pizza Ranch Buffet. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm into it. I mean, sounds good. (laughs) It's around lunchtime and they collect the straw from his glass after he leaves. They still need to build their case, so they can't just arrest him right away when they get this DNA match. They send two detectives to his business, and they walk in to question him. There's hidden camera footage of them in his office with him, and his cat is just walking all over the desk in front of the body camera. I was cracking up. (laughs) They explain they're from the cold case unit following up on Michelle's murder, and he says he's never heard of the case. They show him a picture, and he says he never knew her until the case was in the news. Okay. They interview him for quite a while before he tells Jerry, hey, we actually have this warrant for your DNA right here. They collect the sample and confront him, saying they already know it's going to be a match. Like, we already know exactly who you are. Like, so why are you fighting it? He acts surprised and says, why? And they say, well, we're hoping you were going to tell us. We already know what it is, bitch. Just say it yourself. We already had your DNA before we even came here. We gotcha. Damn. They confront him on December 19th, 2018, the anniversary of Michelle's murder. He keeps repeating, I don't know what happened. I wasn't there. You're going to have to test the DNA. Fully, truly, deeply, just completely trying to be in denial. Mm Mm-hmm. Ultimately, they arrest him for first-degree murder, and his family is able to put together a healthy defense fund so they can hire some top-tier lawyers. Janelle, Michelle's sister, says she thought he'd look like a monster, but he just looked like an average guy. She says it looked like he could have been in court for a parking ticket. Kind of the point of the title of the podcast, if we're being honest. The trial opens with the prosecution going over their theory— that in 1979, Jerry attacked Michelle and stabbed her to death. They call her classmates to the stand to testify, and they all talk about how kind and friendly she was, always impeccably dressed, and very upbeat, 
Andy Seidel is also called to the stand. And he says that she was so good and so pure, and she just treated other people so well. Michelle's family had been convinced Andy was the killer for so many years. I mean, I can imagine everyone in the town saying, or like everyone in your family saying it was this specific person, just for it to not be that person, I would have a hard time not believing that. Does that make sense? And you're dragged through the mud. If this is you being accused of this and you didn't do it, your life is being ruined along the way. Even though you haven't gone to court and there hasn't been anything where they could arrest you, it's still damning. A lot of people are just going to say, well, the the cops looked at them. They must be guilty. And the cops just don't have enough. After Andy testifies, he moves away before Janelle could connect with him. She says in an interview she would really want to apologize to him after all these years for thinking that he was capable of doing something like that to Michelle. Kurt testifies about his last conversation with Michelle, her smile as he walked her out the door. He gets really choked up and says her loss has affected his entire life. He's held a lot of guilt for not just walking her out to the car. I mean, I can't imagine the amount of guilt. Like, you shouldn't feel any kind of guilt, like, not walking someone else to the car, but, like... But, of course, you will after something like this. Of course, like, if something went the slightest bit wrong, I'll think, like, oh, I should have done this or that, but, like... Yeah, he says that even though there wasn't the concept of a monster in the parking lot in his brain, it consumes him that he maybe could have prevented this. Yeah. The lead detective testifies about all the years of the investigation, all of the evidence, all the way up to that hidden camera footage. The jury sees almost the entire video of them interviewing Jerry in his office. The defense takes a real blow with this because Jerry is so calm while he's being questioned. He never claims innocence. He never gets angry or escalated when he's trying to defend himself. He's very deadpan. And I know that I would be fucking pissed. Like, not only would I be, like, mad at them for suggesting I could be involved, I would call my lawyer, but I would be having a reaction to this. There's also surveillance footage from the cop car where Jerry is asked if it's possible he could have killed Michelle, but he couldn't remember any of it. Jerry says, quote, sometimes you block things out of your memories. The jury sees almost an hour of video footage where Jerry never denies killing Michelle, never says, oh, there must be some confusion, something's wrong here. Then they have footage of Jerry and his cellmate, Michael Allison. Michael turns state's witness and testifies that Jerry actually calls him son. And there's video footage from the prison of Jerry signing a newspaper for Michael, one that had a picture on it from the trial. Um, why? Uh, What? (laughs) Um, why? He also testifies that Jerry had said he feels like he got away with the murder no matter what happens because he's been free this whole time and he was able to be with his family before finally having to go to trial. You fucking piece of shit. How dissociated from reality do you have to be? It's disgusting. They bring Michelle's dress to the courtroom on a mannequin to show the jury where Jerry's DNA was on it. Damn. The defense calls just one witness, a forensic consultant, Dr. Michael Spence. He testifies about the DNA transfer theory, how when you're coughing or sneezing or really doing anything, DNA is spreading from your body. 
After two hours of testimony, he's asked if the DNA could have been transferred to Michelle's dress. The prosecution objects on grounds of speculation, but the judge allows Spence to answer the question, was it plausible that there was an innocent transfer of DNA? And he says, yes, it's a distinct possibility. Okay. Day nine of the trial is the closing arguments. Janelle says she was watching Jerry closely. She was curious what kind of reaction he would have to the prosecution's closing argument. He was stone-faced the entire time. The prosecutor says that Jerry followed her out of the mall and decided to kill her. He goes free for years, going on to start a family. He must have been looking over his shoulder this whole time. The prosecutor says what I said. If someone came to him and confronted him like this, he would flip out and be mad. He also says this transfer theory is ridiculous. The defense is ready to try to poke a hole in the case. There's no motive. There's just the DNA. The prosecutors, though, had found evidence that the judge deemed inadmissible. Jerry's search history, blonde molested after getting strangled, and sex with freshly dead person. Gross. Um, I find few words to like describe what I'm feeling right now. Why that would be inadmissible is beyond me. Just like, what is the main thought that I'm thinking? Michelle's brother-in-law, John, says this is obviously a motive, and I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Somehow the defense is able to keep this out. So the defense's closing is centered around the fact that Jerry had no motive to kill Michelle. He has a family. He's a great man. He's a local businessman. And he says that his expert witness, Spence, proved DNA isn't infallible. The surveillance footage where Jerry repeatedly says, test the DNA, I wasn't there that night. This proves he is not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, according to the defense. The jury goes out to deliberate and the prosecution side is nervous about the results. The jury comes back in three hours with a verdict of guilty of murder in the first degree. Janelle and John are jumping up and down, hugging, just so relieved. The cops continue to get calls from other jurisdictions that people suspect Jerry may have been involved in, including the disappearance of Jody Husentrude. She was a 27-year-old news reporter who went missing on June 27th, 1995. She lived in Mason City, Iowa, and she looks pretty similar to Michelle. Jerry's lawyer says there's no evidence connecting him to any other crimes, but his cousin, Brian Burns, had also gone missing on December 19th, the anniversary of Michelle's murder. With COVID-19, Jerry is back in court, masked up to find out the sentence. Iowa doesn't have the death penalty, but Jerry Lynn Burns is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. What the fuck is it with these men having Lynn middle names? Jesus, Like, this has come up repeatedly. Michelle's family does feel like he got away with it to an extent because he should have been caught in 1976. Janelle also says that Michelle is forever 18 and she'll always be known as that beautiful person. So let's talk about Jody Sue Husentrude. Yes. She was born on June 5th, 1968 in Long Prairie, Minnesota to her parents, Nicholas and Jane. She played golf in high school and was considered a skilled player. She and her team competed in and won the Class A tournament in 1985 and 1986. 
She went to St. Cloud State University and studied mass communications and speech communication. She graduated with her bachelor's degree in 1990, and after graduating, she gets a job working for Northwest Airlines. She starts using her degree when she finds a role with a local CBS affiliate station in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, KGAN. She works as the station's Iowa City Bureau Chief before going back to Alexandria, Minnesota at KSAX, an ABC affiliate. Then she moves to Iowa, this time in Mason City, working for KIMT. On Monday, June 26, weirdly the day after my birthday, the day before Jody disappears, Friends see her at a golf tournament that she was playing in. John Van Syce says after the tournament, she went with him back to his place where they watched a home video he'd made at her birthday party earlier in the month. He'd planned a surprise party for her. So it sounds like they were pretty close friends. Yeah. John also lives in Mason City. Around 4 a.m., Jody fails to show up for work. Something very outside of the norm. Producer Amy Coons from KIMT jumps into action right away and starts calling Jody. Jody answers the phone and says she overslept and she'll be on her way as soon as possible. By 6 a.m., Jody still hasn't made it to the studio. So Amy has to fill in for Jody's morning show, Daybreak. At 7 a.m., they call the police to report Jody missing. Cops go to Jody's apartment to try to speak with her, and they find her red Mazda Miata there, still in the parking lot. There are signs of a struggle, and Jody's keychain on the ground shows her car key had been bent. More of her personal items are all over the ground, including red high heels, makeup, earrings, hairspray, and her hair dryer. They were able to find a palm print on her car. Her purse and briefcase are nowhere to be found, and there are drag marks and blood in the parking lot as well. The cops start canvassing the apartment complex, so they start knocking on doors to see if anyone heard anything. At least three neighbors told them that they heard screams coming from the parking lot at the time Jody would have been leaving for work. They were just like, oh, no big deal. None of them called the police. One neighbor remembers seeing a white Ford van running with its lights on in the parking lot that Jody's car was in around the same time. This van is never identified, but it's believed that she was abducted. Damn. When cops investigate Jody's apartment, the toilet seat is left up. Very strange because Jody lives alone. Yeah. John Van Syce is all over the place in interviews about Jody. He's using past and present tense interchangeably and never providing a concrete time that Jody left his house after watching the home video. There is also a Civil War reenactment camp nearby, like right behind the apartment complex. So someone could possibly have thought that the screams were coming from over there. Yeah. You will go to great lengths to think that everything you're hearing or seeing is normal. Right. One neighbor said she heard a man pounding on Jody's door, demanding to be let in and saying he knew she was inside. But he left after a while of her ignoring him. At 4.30 a.m., this same neighbor hears a loud thud in the parking lot and someone screaming, no, don't, as well as a name that wasn't clear enough to make out. Damn. About eight months before Jody's disappearance, she'd reported to police that a dark-colored van with tinted windows had been following her. On the whole, female news anchors do get a good amount of creeps who fixate on them yes. for one reason or another. <laughs> the cops start looking into Thomas Corscadden, a man who had a long history of sexual crimes, who was driving a white van in September 1995. He had been focused on Jody 
always trying to catch her show and referring to Jody as my girl. Uh, why? <laughs> Ew. Uh, no. Ew. When cops search his van for the aforementioned sex crimes, they find lube, handcuffs, and a dirty old mattress in the back, along with a ton of pornog. <laughs> no thanks. No. Not long after Jody was abducted, this van was burned. The cops also suspect Tony Jackson, a known rapist who lived two blocks away from KIMT in Mason City at the time that Jody disappeared. He denies meeting her and is ultimately ruled out by the cops. Then there's John Van Sice. He and Jody had been spending a good amount of time together in the month leading up to her abduction. Jody and her friends all like John. They even go on a few weekend trips with him where they all water ski together. He'd even named his boat after Jody, saying in a news interview that Jody had been a big part of his life lately. In the years following, he has declined to speak with reporters. Naming your boat after someone you know that you're not in a relationship with feels like a weird move. Absolutely. In September 1995, Jody's family hired a private investigation firm to look into her disappearance. The firm reaches out to Jug Jassa, a PI from Omaha, Nebraska. Both investigating groups have been on TV, working with Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. In November 1995, they and a few members of Jody's family fly out to Los Angeles, California to meet with a couple of prominent psychics. This meeting is actually filmed and becomes the pilot for the TV show Psychic Detectives. No viable leads come from this side of the investigation. In May 1996, a group of 100 community members volunteered to search an area of Cerro Gordo County, and they left flags on anything they found that seemed suspicious. Law enforcement then went back and go through the flags, but they aren't able to find anything helpful. Thomas Corscadden is interviewed in 1996 and says... He knows what happened to Jody. She's dead. Nothing comes from this because the police are able to rule him out. Um, yep. Um, I like don't even have any words for how weird that sounds. It's just getting so weird. Yeah. And like people who try to take credit for a murder or a crime like this that they didn't commit yeah. is just so weird and gross. Yeah. Ugh. In May 2001, Jody was declared legally dead. In 2005, 2020 did a special on Jody's disappearance for the 10th anniversary. In early June 2008, photocopies of Jody's journal from 1994 were mailed anonymously to a local paper, the Mason City Globe Gazette. Wow. There are 84 pages in total, and the package is postmarked June 4th from Waterloo. The weird thing is that this journal has been in evidence by law enforcement this entire time. Um. Within just a couple days, it comes out that the person responsible for mailing it is a local journalist and also the wife of the former police chief of Mason City. <sighs> The cops never reveal the motive for her doing this or why the former chief had taken a copy of the journal in the first place. No criminal charges are filed against them, which, what the fuck? Ugh, I have no words. Like, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine valuing money over someone's individual life. So, like, I can't imagine think oh publicity is more important her journal is so private like yeah. to do that is really just 
disrespectful exactly like even if you're doing it anonymously yeah and like you're hoping it doesn't get traced back to you ultimately you are violating in may 2015 all 100 members of the iowa house of representatives came together and signed a letter to mason city asking that they declare june 27 2015 as jody husentrut day in honor of jody and all victims with unsolved cases for some unknown reason the city declines to do this. What? The fuck? Why? In December 2016, State Representative John Kuicker is retiring from his position in Sioux County when he writes an op-ed for the Northwest Iowa Review saying that Jody's disappearance had been a cover-up by the officials running Mason City. In March 2017, cops got a warrant to look at GPS data for two of John Van Sice's cars, a 1999 Honda Civic and a 2013 GMC 1500. Nothing comes of this. Obviously, these cars are than his car would have been at the time of Jody's disappearance. This kind of makes no sense to me. Few things make sense to me. <laughs> John has no connections to other crimes, so it's really curious that they would do this. Yeah. Maybe they're just trying to look good, like they're making progress on this case. The police chief publicly says that nothing meaningful was found, and as of 2020, all the records to this case were still sealed. Wow. John did have an alibi. A friend of his said they'd called him at 6 a.m. that morning and he was at home. They scheduled a morning walk and wanted to confirm, hey, we're still on. And they do take the walk at 7 a.m. John is perfectly fine. He's not anxious. He's not behaving strangely. Nothing's up. As of the time of this recording, Mason City Police Department are still actively investigating Jody's disappearance. Yeah. In July 2021, a billboard with Jody's picture and a message asking people to come forward, directing them to Jody's website, is posted. There is also a podcast on this website with interviews from Jody's friends, family, and coworkers. And that stuff will be linked in the episode description. Thank you for coming back on. Yeah. I love talking to you in general. Yeah. Same. Very much same. Thank you, friend, for tuning in. Appreciate you so much. Feel free to find us on Instagram. Send me a DM or email. We're on Patreon. You can send me a Red Bull. Everything is linked in the Instagram bio. Do you have a high note that we can close out on? I have to say, for anyone in college, even if you're bad at something, having a good attitude about it is great. (laughs) (laughs) I can say personally, I am terrible at a lot of things, but if you have a good attitude about it, it makes it a lot better. So just fail at things optimistically. That's it. (laughs) Fail upwards. Fail upwards. That's great. (laughs) Can't be more optimistic than that. My high point is that I've been taking good care of my fingernails. Yes. I've been painting them and growing them out and making sure that they're protected with nail polish, but also I'm using like a peely base coat from Hollow Taco. It helps me because my anxiety really makes me want to pick at my nails. And so I can just peel it off and then repaint them, which also is like time away from my phone and just something I kind of got to focus on. Usually can watch a movie or TV show so I can be patient enough for them to dry. Thanks for tuning in, friends. Uh, We'll see you next time.